Welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation, heard at americascannabisconversation.com. We're part of the W420 Radio Network, and each week we provide you with information, education, and insight into the exploding medical and recreational cannabis industry. W420radionetwork.com. Time now for the lowdown on another high-time experience. Here's 420 lifestyle correspondent Rich Walkoff. All right, if you're excited about a career or maybe investing in the wonderful world of weed, the cannabis man is here with us today, former CEO at Harborside, Andrew Berman. And Andrew, I guess we could say, although you were the CEO of one of the most venerable dispensaries in California history, what a turbulent time it is for the industry. I mean, it's exciting, it's exaggerating, it's fascinating, and it. Uh, it's ever-changing the landscape, I could say, in cannabis in 2020. I couldn't agree more, Rich. Uh, yeah, Harborside, iconic brand and uh, fabulous operator, but the times are just very, very challenging as you see these public markets, which are all driven out of Canada, and the uh, market drying up on sort of a cash flow side, and just the challenges are getting harder and harder right now to be, le- you know, if you're going to be in the legal business. Yeah, now if I, if I want to get involved, I want to get in the game, what are the, some of the considerations? I mean, you got a legal background, you got a venture capitalist background, and you jumped into the cannabis world four years ago, and rose to CEO of one of the most uh, amazing dispensaries, Harborside in Oakland, California, had more sales, the first license in the state of California, kind of the linchpin, pioneer, put you on the Mount Rushmore of cannabis. Certainly did. Yeah, well, you ask about the considerations, my recommendation to people who want to get into the space is uh, be patient right now, right? I do believe in the industry. It will come around. A lot of the issues that we're facing here in California and around the country is because folks got into the space expecting the U.S. to have at least had some regulatory alleviation at this point and banking and taxation maybe being addressed and that's not happening anytime soon. So if you want to come come into the space, I do believe there's growth opportunity in it still. Uh, but you got to have some patience and hold on to your seat because it's pretty volatile. Right yeah. Now, now Harborside went from a nonprofit for a, a dozen years, and you were on board when you merged with Canadian company that catapulted the business. The stock was almost seven dollars a share. Now it's one tenth of that two years later, and your job is no more. Corollary coincidence. Oh, I think that's just the life of uh, the cannabis business right now. You're absolutely right. Harborside, like I said, has been you know, around for 12 years, and we made a very, very conscious decision. Uh, and I made a conscious decision, as did our founders, that I would come in coterminous with everything going recreational in the U.S. and the nonprofit businesses becoming for-profit businesses. And my job was to get the company public in Canada, and we did that. But the market gyrations that are going on, if you just look at all the cannabis businesses over the past 12 months, even what some would say are the, you know, the better companies right now have lost half their market cap over the last 12 months. And many are sitting there like Harborside having lost 60, 70, 80 percent of their value. I do believe it will come back, but I think folks need to have some patience on it. All right. What are the factors? And I would just say this, Rich. When and, and the proof in that is look at these stores. I mean, Harborside is still a great place to go visit Rich, and a great conversation and a great, you know, and a great place to be able to experience cannabis. And we're seeing a lot of people every day. That hasn't changed. Yeah. Well, what are the what are the factors? 
that are contributing greatest to the decline in, in the revenues and the profitability of these companies. Canada goes legal. That spurred a lot of activity on the positive side there. But a year later, maybe the quality isn't there. Maybe the restrictions on... Yeah. Well, you, you tell no, me. No, about- no, no. Look, the big issues are pretty clear to me. Uh, banking, uh, taxation... Um, the illicit market, and if you're a retailer, the component of taxation that's 280E, you can't deduct your ordinary and customary business expenses when you're a retailer. You can't deduct salaries, rent, utilities, right? Everything's sort of, you're taxed on your gross margin. And banking hard, because this remains a federally schedule one substance right it's 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 the worst of the worst as far as the you know the country scheduling is concerned you don't have banks providing ordinary banking and again taxation and what has this done this just spurs this illicit market that we all talk about mm-hmm. california had a 3 billion dollar medical market in 2017 the market has relatively shrunk since then in 18 and 19 with regulation and compliance and all those costs. Everybody expects the market to get back to a $3 billion market this year. But that, that, that's dwarfed by this illicit market that's just out there that's not doing any of this stuff and continues to cultivate and grow cannabis and send that cannabis around the state and outside mm-hmm. the state. Now, the Safe Banking Act passed in the House of Representatives. It's in the Senate. Hard pressed to see that oh, succeeding see that. unless there is a through. blue wave in yeah. 2020 in November. Right. That could change everything. But short of that, if you don't have the banking assistance to make it commercially viable, you really can't get to the next step. No, it's very, very hard. And, uh, you know, Harborside, even with all of its uh, history and longevity, we worked a lot with credit unions. Uh, I've got some uh, personal investments in um, in other states, Hawaii and Ohio. Um, we use credit unions there as well, too. Uh, but we had a services business. So we, we, you know, we sort of structured the business into plant touching and non-plant touching businesses. And I was doing some, you know, the, even on the plant touch, on the non-plant touch side very very hard to get banking done because of the scheduling at the federal level yeah and and if it doesn't change that keeps kind of you're in a fight with one hand tied behind your back if you're legal and uh trying to make it as a as a as a corporation or as as a dispensary or whatever there there is no other business that sort of has these same constraints to get off the ground you'd be you you, you'll find it easier to open up a coffee shop in your town than you ever would to be able to open up a cannabis dispensary and yet you know cannabis is legal uh you know we're sitting here today in marin county you had 75 you you had other than the city and county of san francisco marin county had the highest voter turnout for prop 64 and there's not a retail location in the county it's a nimby uh, a mentality. So there may be consumers, there may be advocates, there may be supporters, but there are no, there's no support for the dispensary. Yeah, it's absolutely right. The, the county went through two years of, uh, of a process and ran a process and in the end didn't award any licenses. They allowed delivery. Uh, but, uh, and, and now what you'll see is at the individual level, some of the cities here reconsider that. But no, it's very, very challenging. And the regulatory side is very, very tough, which is why you go back to your opening question, opening theme. You want to get into this? 
There's promise here. This is not going away. The industry is getting bigger. More states are coming online. The stigma is being removed. I was reading this morning about just, you know, folks over the age of 65 that they, that, 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 uh, that the increase in cannabis use and acceptance has increased 75% over just what the statistics were a year ago. So it's happening. It's just going to take some time to get it all through. Right. So you got to play the long game, even if it is cumbersome, costly, and uh, you, you better be very patient. Right? Well, and that's and the long game is, I mean, I think that's part of the problem that you've seen in the industry is a lot of folks got in hoping to make a quick buck. Um, and uh, and that hasn't materialized for a lot of folks. All right. Now, at, at Harborside, what worked other than the fact it was the first it was one of the only at the time to have, well, support for education, seniors, veterans, families with sick kids. So it was a medicinal dispensary in yeah. 2006 when it opened, correct? Correct. And then as a nonprofit, it transitioned under your tutelage to a for-profit company. And, and explain what the difference was there and the challenges and the, yeah. and the successes you had. Well, just, I mean, uh, imagine your local church or assisted living facility that's a nonprofit suddenly becoming a for-profit business. Everything changes about the business. Your cost of compliance goes up. The way you operate your business changes. The type of folks that are coming in to the business. And remember, it wasn't just going for-profit, but it was going from a medical market to an adult use market to a recreational market. So what worked? Harborside continues to provide a great customer experience. It has always been a place that you could that you could um, learn about cannabis, talk about cannabis, and purchase cannabis. Very much an experiential opportunity at Harborside, and it continues to be that this day. And trust and choice and value, right? We, it was a place you could come in and know you got. Uh, you could trust the product that was on the shelf. We were testing product before the testing rigs came in, and we always provided a lot of choice among our among our product offerings. We had our own products, but we brought other. We wanted to create that community, so the folks in the Emerald Triangle or folks that are creating other products could get on our shelves. And we always had a value product, to tell you the truth, Rich. We we did. We weren't always the cheapest game in town, but we always had some product uh, that we provided at a better value than yeah. other people and, as well, and, too. And, and that hasn't changed. Well, that's that's encouraging. And, and talk about the vertical integration oh, yeah, of sure. your company and the industry as a whole. Yeah. Well, it, uh, vertical integration in the industry as a whole is really driven by, driven by the regulatory framework in each state, right? So, so. Um, you know, Hawaii, for example, is a vertically integrated state. There are eight licensees in the state and, and, and they grow and they process and they produce. Maine is the same way. Uh, you know, grow, process, and, and sell at retail. Uh, California, you can be vertically integrated by acquiring other licenses. Ohio, you can do the same thing. Florida is a vertically integrated market as well, too. Um, what that allows, obviously, we saw early on, that we would want to control the inputs, the, call them the bookends, right? You wanted to be able to have a secure source of clean cannabis, that biomass coming into your products and getting on your shelves. Not that it would be the exclusive 
but you wanted to at least know you always had a secure piece. And you always want to have that retail customer experience too. Your product's only good if you can get it sold to people, right? So, so that's what vertical integration meant for us, uh, that we would have a secure source. We would be able to sell it on our shelves. We created a couple of brands in that process. And by the way, we also had a bit of a wholesale business too. So we weren't a hundred percent vertically integrated. And we did that intentionally because we always wanted to make sure that we could give some biomass to some of our partners that were creating products who were then coming on our shelves as well too. But that's driven. The states are all over the map. And then everything has to be driven at the local level too. Remember, California's regulatory scheme requires you, the state license is almost the easier license to get. You got to get it through the local level. Um, and so, and at the local level, as you can see, they're all over the map. Some cities allow retail, some don't. Some allow processing, some don't. Some allow processing, but it can't be volatile processing. So like a butane hash oil versus a rosin press. Um, some allow cultivation, some don't. And then the taxations all over the gamut too. Santa Rosa is a relatively, uh, more positive place uh, in terms of the tax structure. Oakland's kind of an expensive place, frankly, to have, you know, to be running a cannabis mm-hmm. business. All right. Career opportunities, advice, experience that you've oh, sure. been through? Oh, uh, for cannabis, there's nothing, um, I want to say this in the nicest way. There, there's one side is it's an incredibly exciting space to be in. I, I, I mean, the challenges are like nothing I've ever seen from, from the legal side, from the business side, regulatory side, retail, the new customers coming in. Fascinating. On the other hand, the industry, um, the industry has people in it just like any other industry. If you have strong marketing skills, you know, from another retailer, those are transferable into a cannabis retail store. You're still doing the same thing. You want somebody to have a great customer experience. If you're a great product person or a design person, these products still need to have great design and, and you know, and great product launching and everything else. So, so I, I don't necessarily think of it as a, a limiting. It's just another, it's another industry that you can take your same skills and be transferable into. And I think there's opportunity, obviously, for folks to step into it now. And I think, I hope, Put it this way, I really hope that there are more opportunities for women and 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 people of color as well, too. Uh, most of the states and locations have tried to have equity programs. They're a mixed bag. Some of them work. Some of them really don't. But I would encourage people, if you want to come in, to just treat it. You know, if you've got good skills, they're transferable. I do think, having been a hirer in the Bay Area, you still face the same challenges, right? There are... You know, if you want to be hiring a good product person, they can make a lot of money just going to work in Silicon Valley or some of these other companies. So hiring gets a little bit challenging, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's this life in the Bay Area as well, too. Sure. All right. How about investors, entrepreneurs, the caveats, opportunities? We talked about the long game. Yeah. You're not going to make that quick, fast buck. But... What would you, oh, what I would you suggest? I would actually say now is a great time to look at it, right? The, the, the prices and the values on these businesses are just depressed right now. I mean, companies are trading at the retail, retailers are trading at the 0.6, 0.7 times sales. Um, I think that's healthy. But you want to come in as an investor and you want to, you want to quickly look at the same things you would do in any business and look at a business's fundamentals and that includes their profitability. Uh, and I think you also have to decide where you want to be in the value chain, right? Um, whether you want to be in cultivation, whether you want to be on the product side, whether you want to be in retail. I personally, 
uh, like the product side. Uh, I like the brand side. Uh, this is very much becoming a consumer play and consumers like good brands. And I think the other piece on all of this, of course, is just getting the right education across to the consumers. I do believe the stigma has been removed a lot, but I think there's an awful lot more education we can do for the industry and help people come into it. Yeah, there's kind of a new paradigm on how cannabis is considered, oh. not only with the seniors you, you mentioned oh. earlier, but just generally in the if, general population. Can I tell you something? If you have not, if you're listening and you're curious and you really have a vision of cannabis from a different point in your life, uh, you know, just walk into a good, high-quality retailer. There's a lot in the Bay Area. The products, you know, they range... Uh, uh, there's flower and there's all types of flower and there's indoor and outdoor and sun grown and greenhouse and, and, and different cannabis, cannabinoid profiles in those. And there are edibles and there are oils and there's so many, and there are cookies and brownies, tinctures, tinctures and bombs and salves and topicals and, and there's just so many ways to look at the product. It's just fascinating. And you know something? If it's not your thing, who cares? That's fine too. Go in and see what's out there. But if you're, but if you're afraid to look at it because you have this notion of what cannabis once was, or you took a hit of a joint from somebody that had a 25 point plus THC content, there's lots of other things out there. I mean, I think that's kind of a hard thing, right? Is that sometimes people say, wow, I took a hit of a, you know, somebody's joint and I was knocked out and I can't do this. No, well, go try, you know, you don't. That, okay, that person liked the high THC joint. What can you say? <laughs> Had a bad date. I'm never going to see another woman in my life. I, that's not the way to roll. Hey, Andy, Andy, it's been great chatting with you. Oh, Andy I Berman. Really appreciate you. I appreciate being on here, Rich. You're a great guy. Well, thank you. I really appreciate what you're doing. I really appreciate what you're doing because, because getting people on and getting a Getting a conversation going around right. this is fascinating. Well, we're America's ca cannabis conversation. Exactly. If people want to reach out to you, your contact info, please. Oh, yeah. Uh, you can use my Gmail account, A-B-E-R-M-A-N, A-Berman, M-V, as in Mill Valley, which is where I live, A-Berman, M-V, at gmail.com. And my cell phone number, I don't care, 415 415-328-7997. I've been the mayor of Mill Valley twice. I'm not one of those people that hides i don't post a whole lot of stuff but there's a lot out there on the uh, i've had more fbi checks and background checks and they always come back and say wow for a guy's run for office twice you have like nothing there <laughs> so no. there's a lot out there yeah, full disclosure i like that andy that's great transparency transparency is very very important to me yeah, yeah. well that's a good thing and it's a good thing thanks so much for joining yeah, thank us thank you very much with rich walkoff on the w420 radio network Are you interested in learning more about cannabis? Have you thought about starting your own cannabis business but don't know how? If so, we invite you to join the Cannabis Conversation with other people like you who are looking at the exciting opportunities in this exploding business. Listen to America's Cannabis Conversation. You'll hear from industry experts and get insights into the cannabis industry. For archived shows and for more information, log on to americascannabisconversation.com. It's time for Women in Cannabis on America's Cannabis Conversation, part of the W420 Radio Network. Didn't you get the memo? Here's Chase Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. This is Chase Roberts, Women in Cannabis correspondent for the W420 Radio Network. It is my pleasure to introduce Ellen Comp, a woman of many talents, a marijuana activist since 1991, previous editor of Hemp World Magazine, 
author at Cannabis Now, High Times, and Leafly, amongst others, and runs VeryImportantPodheads.com and TokenWomanBlogspot.com. She is currently the Deputy Director of California Normal. Ellen, welcome. Thanks for being here. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. You know what, Ellen, what an illustrious career. When you first started as a volunteer at Normal and then served on the board, could you ever imagine that you would someday be the deputy director? No, and in fact, I, I didn't realize I'd be working on it for 30 years and counting. Uh, I thought it was going to be a slam dunk, you know, and uh, I, I started as a hemp activist, went over to maybe medical marijuana just to help patients who were approaching me who needed help right away and that turned into a whole 20-year yeah. project and yeah now there's a lot to iron out about the legalization part in general so did I ever think I'd be deputy director no I was just a volunteer <laughs> petitioner and yeah. um you know well, I didn't think it was going to be a lifelong lifelong commitment necessarily but it's been it's been quite a wild, wild ride I don't think I'd do it any other way I can only imagine. And you know what? Let's refresh our listeners. What is normal and what is the mission statement of normal in case they do not know? Yes. Um, normal is the national organization for the reform of marijuana laws. It was founded in 1970 uh, by a man named Keith Strop, who went around and, and uh, worked for first decriminalizations when they were still putting people in jail for a joint, you know, across the country. And um, so California Normal, who I work for, started in 1972 and is the state chapter of, of National Normal. And so we work largely on state issues in Sacramento, but also across the state and also with the California congressional delegation on federal issues, which are finally starting to see some action after many years of, of nothing, you know, through all the Just Say No 80s and on up until very recently. So yeah. um, now, with all the states that are, you know, moving to legalize not just medical, but recreational, it's really bringing a lot of pressure for some kind of federal change. And as you probably know, there's a few um, possibilities floating around right now. Absolutely. That, you know, the tide is trying to change thanks to groups like Normal. Um, mm -hmm. In 2020, even during the pandemic, you guys actually got a lot done, considering everything was kind of at a standstill. Um, what, what are some of your highlights, do you think, from 2020? Well, um, the first thing that happened very interestingly was we got cannabis declared as an essential business uh, under the pandemic in uh, starting in San Francisco, which actually uh, tried to call it not, tried to close all the um, dispensaries. And we said, oh, no, because this is the only place people can get medicine, you know, and uh, so uh, got Governor Newsom to sign an executive order, uh, keeping all the dispensaries open. And um, I think he's seen some political backlash from that, as a matter of fact. He also moved to close churches. Um, and, you know, I, that's part of what started this whole recall effort to, and, you know, there was even a lawsuit about him closing the churches that mentioned the fact that he kept cannabis businesses open. So, yeah. Do you think Governor Newsom is a proponent for the cannabis industry here in California? Is this something oh. you can speak to or? Yes, I do. Actually, CalNormal has taken the step, which we haven't done before, of um, 
actually endorsing a candidate or coming out against the recall of Governor Newsom. Um, usually we just put out information about candidates, but this we thought was important enough to um, take a stand, a stronger stand. We do have a voter guide where we talk about some of these alternative candidates, but Newsom has been, um, I mean, even when he was Lieutenant government, Governor and even before was one of the early people to come out for full legalization. He convened a blue ribbon commission to study uh, legalization in California and was a proponent of Prop 64, which did legalize for recreational use. Not, not perfectly by any means. Um, and uh, we've been pushing him for, you know, things like trying to uh, lower taxation, especially for medical patients and, and different things like that, that, you know, he, he could have been better on, but um, we don't think there's another candidate um, among the others, certainly really who's qualified to be governor, who uh, is, is anywhere near as good as Newsom is on. You know, some of the Republicans that have been running have really bad records in the voting, you know, voting in the legislature. And um, Newsom is has been really a strong proponent for legal cannabis. Is there any other politicians in California you could name that also you feel resonates with this industry and helping it move along in positive ways um, to help it grow and be completely normalized? Yeah, well, there's, um, you know, the three um, legislators, including our current attorney general, Rob Bonta, who helped drew up the laws uh, that became McCursa that um, regulated uh, medical cannabis and then recreational cannabis um, in keeping with the federal mandates and things like that, um, and really kind of got, got the industry going. Um, Scott Weiner comes to mind, the senator from San Francisco, who um, passed the bill to allow for donations of medical cannabis to indigent patients, which formerly had to be taxed under the old regime. It was kind of a, you know, unintended consequence of Prop 64 because, you know, medical marijuana in particular has always been about compassion. In fact, Prop 215, which passed 25 years ago, was called the Compassionate Use Act. You were um, pretty all about you were a huge part of that too. And actually you run a, a magazine called 215 Reporter. <laughs> I did. I found it, co-founded a magazine, 215 Reporter, which was the first, it was kind of court reporting because the people were still being dragged into court for many years after that uh, for federal law. In fact, there's still at least one guy in prison, Luz Scarmazzo, um, serving a 20 year sentence for running a dispensary in Modesto. Yeah, um, you, you're actively pursuing getting rid of, uh, expunging records that aren't just, that's what yeah, expungement's been a real thorny thing. You know, there was a, a clause in prop or in prop 64 to allow for someone to petition to have their past records expunged. And, um, someone got up at a meeting with Rob Bonta, who was then in the legislature and said, why do I have to go through all the time and expense to do that? Shouldn't it be an automatic process? So he actually passed a bill 1793, to um, supposedly automate the expungement process. It turns out to be like many things, a lot more complicated than that. And so right. I've been trying to watchdog around the state along with some other groups um, to uh, really nail down where it's happened. You know, how, uh, how does it work with uh, companies that do background checks, employment background checks? Are they required to have the latest information? Because every court has to actually 
change their records and send that information to the Department of Justice in California. And it's been very spotty how that's happened across the state, just like a lot of different things are, you know. And um, so uh, I still continue to recommend if someone really wants to know their record is clear to, to go through the petition process, which you can do yourself. You don't really need a lawyer to do it. Um, there are legal aid societies, even that'll help. Um, and, uh, or at, and there are ways that you can verify online at the Department of Justice website in California. You can look at your own criminal record so you can see if it's, if it's been expunged there. Um, I'd like to hear from more people to see if they've checked that, to see if that's really happening, because that's, you know, you can lose a job and there are all kinds of things for a past, you know, marijuana record for something that's now totally legal to do. Yeah. And or not be permitted opportunities to even begin with at all. And, you know, changing gears a little bit, um, you were quoted in several press accounts um, talking about the ACLU report and the yearly crime report from the California District Attorney showing continuing disparities in arrests for marijuana among people of color. And then normal, you guys did your own analysis and found that when adding in crimes and other than possession, the arrest disparities are even worse. Can you delve into yes. that a little bit? Uh, what you guys found and what's, what is your report gonna hopefully be the impetus for and as far as a harder push to not have those disparities anymore? Yeah. Um, well, the ACLU looked at um, federal data, which interestingly enough, um, they, they looked at only possession arrests and the federal data categorizes Hispanic people as white. So I went to the data and I, because the uh, California AG puts out data every year that we always look at about arrests and they always show, you know, a higher preponderance of arrests of Hispanics first and then blacks also. And so factoring in that, as well as arrests for other crimes, I found that the disparities continue like on the order of four times as many for black people and twice as many for Hispanic people. Um, and that those, those disparities have increased in the couple of years since um, Prop 215 has been, or I'm sorry, Prop 64 has been fully in effect. So um, this is something that's gaining a lot of traction with uh, people even like Kamala Harris who've come around now to realize, you know, hey, this, this uh, war on marijuana, it isn't just unjust in general, it's especially unjust for people of color who are more likely to be arrested for the crime that are, the, you know, quote unquote crime that's being, uh, you know, as many people, white people smoke or use marijuana as black people, yet, you know, the arrest disparity is different. So we're, um, that's really helping us uh, push the issue with a lot of people that generally were slow to embrace it before. And it, and it cuts across all things. I was just on a conversation this morning about, you know, we're, a big push of ours is for employment rights for cannabis users, which we still don't have even for medical marijuana users in California. And that's another issue that probably impacts people of color more so than whites. In fact, when the um, mayor of Atlanta signed an executive order to stop testing for marijuana for city employees, um, she made it as part of her equity package because she, you know, because it does impact more frequently people of color who studies show are more likely to be drug tested on the job or suspected of using drugs. And, and you know, what so there's you, just, yeah, so many ways it needs to be fixed. What would you 
recommend to our listeners if they proactively would like to help have a shift there? Is there anything grassroots efforts listeners can do? You know, do? There's a real, there was another really good report that I have up on my website. I'll look it up as we're talking, who, who put it out. Um, that really drilled down sometimes neighborhood by neighborhood. Another thing that's happening, we, what we really need um, for activists is to them get act, to get active on the local level because the local level is what's really choking a lot of licensing that's happening. You know, two thirds of the state still isn't licensing cannabis businesses and what's happening is NIMBYs are showing up or like reefer madness people are showing up at local um, meetings and, and stopping things from happening. But this report that happened um, found, studied the tax money that was generated by, you know, the local tax money that was generated by cannabis um, businesses that have opened in cities and found that a lot of it is going back to police. And they're continuing, as I, we just said, to yeah. arrest disproportionately people of color for marijuana with cannabis tax money. So go, so, go where the money is and start there. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, follow, follow the money, follow the um, agendas of your local city council board of supervisors. See when they're bringing up, uh, you know, the police budget or the sheriff budget or, or, or uh, designating the cannabis tax money and, and follow where it's going because, you know, uh, the stated purposes of Prop 64 were actually to lift up those communities, you know, to have the tax money go towards um, social programs and things, not, not to police that are continuing to make the problem worse than it ever was, really. Right. You know, <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I'll, give me a minute and I'll find, if people just search, um, like, say, ACLU at canormal.org or... Um, here's racism and drug testing. Oh, here it is. Link between cannabis racial arrest disparities and tax dollars for police study. So there were these two reports that came out last June um, from like UC Davis and uh, something called Youth Forward that, like I said, just really went to the arrest disparities and then the police benefiting from local cannabis tax dollars. And um, it, it was really a blockbuster report, um, very well done. That is, is a really good tool for activists. I also have on my website a, a local activist toolkit, you know, to sort of counter um, some of the reefer madness style uh, objections we're getting to local. And another level that we're gonna work towards is um, consumption rooms for cannabis. You know, it's, it's legal quote unquote, but there are very few places where you can consume cannabis. Um, they're uh, trying to pass laws to make it illegal to use uh, in any apartment building or any yeah. new construction apartment building. We've been able to fight that off in a couple different places. Those are being pushed by anti-tobacco folks with tobacco money, but they're lumping in cannabis. Um, we're trying to get um, consumption rooms, you know, like a sort of lounge or something. And, and there are several of them around, you know, in San Francisco and other places, but um, there, there has been resistance to opening that. And so, I have this local toolkit together that you can find on our site that has, you know, these studies. One, one, one of the best things Normal does is we have someone whose his whole job is designated to look at all the studies that come out on cannabis and to put out, you know, solid scientific information to counter some of the, you know, misinformation that's 
they're still rampant in this issue. A lot of misinformation. And it feels like the bigger the industry gets, the more misinformation is out there. Um, Yeah. (laughs) You've been in the industry so long that, you know, I find it interesting. You've had your your website since 2001. um, Famouspotheads.com. Very important potheads. Oh, there we go. Com. I why love you, puns, God forbid me. <laughs> why don't you <laughs> tell me a little bit about that website? Well, you know, I started um, activism with Jack Herer, the author of The Emperor Wears No Clothes, which kind of blew the lid off the whole uh, hemp. You know, his theory was there was a you know conspiracy to keep hemp down and tie it up with marijuana whether that's true or not, there was a lot of good information. And he had a section of his book that was famous people who used marijuana, people like Louis Armstrong and stuff. So I was on the streets for years with this, you know, petitioning and stuff and with this book. And I found the thing that really changed people's minds as if they, there was someone that they knew and admired who used it and wasn't just, you know, a worthless suck on society living on their, you know, living in the you basement of their, you know, father's house or something. Articles and, too about women. Um, well, we'll get to your book in a minute, but yeah. you've also written articles where you call out some of the famous people, like, you know, the proponents, like Shelley's Theron and Susan Sarandon and Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, yeah. now more than ever, people I think are willing to attach their name, um, you know, if they're famous to. Yeah. That's really been an evolution. I mean, when I started that website, so I started doing, um, you know, reading biographies and autobiographies and trying to ferret out people, you know, like maybe more unusual, not just Tommy Chong. Yeah, we know he smokes, you know, (laughs) but um, so, and then of course I was always particularly interested if it was a woman who had a connection to it. And and yes, um, you know, in the early days, I would often find out someone smoked marijuana because they were arrested for it or something. But more and more, People and in particular women do feel uh, able to, you know, speak freely about their marijuana use, not, you know, largely because it's legal now uh, in in many states and and the stigma is is dissolving. But still hear from. Yeah. How many years would you project before we get to a place where that stigma is not so prominent? Any projections? It, it, it's hard to say because, you know, the, say the alcohol culture is very so ingrained in this country, you know, where that's the, that's the accepted social inebriant. I mean, uh, it's, it's a process, you know, like I was going to say, I still hear from parents who sometimes have their parental rights interrupted, you know, because of using cannabis. And that's, that's another very serious uh, side effect of the stigma against it. But, you know, and so I feel like it's dissolving away. There's actually language in Prop 64 to prevent that. But then there's always, they find ways to um, go around a different law or find a different way to repress someone. There's new, some, some new technology that enables them to test for it and stuff. And so I, you know, I thought medical marijuana, we'd be through with it in a couple of years. So I'm not a good person to ask how long it, it's really going to take. It's you know, you can pass, you can change a law, but that doesn't mean the next day everyone accepts you. You know, it's a really long process, you know. Yeah. And then yeah. Um, speaking of which, you have your tokenwomenblogspot.com, which also then leads to your book that you wrote, 
called Token Women, A 4,000-Year History. Um, can mm -hmm. you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Well, that book um, spun off from uh, like uh, uh, presentations I was giving about, you know, famous people I had been able to pin down, famous women in particular. And um, people were asking for a book. So I did put together a book. Uh, sort of a distillation of my research on 50 different women and they're, they're pictured and then it, it's, it's chronological. So it starts with some of the ancient goddesses that had connection with, you know, the healing herb. And my thesis is the, the um, put down of women in, in Western society was concurrent with the put down of plant teachers and, and medicines and herbs that they used uh, for religious purposes, as well as for medical purposes. And um, so then it goes through, you know, the sort of modern bohemian artists and then the beats and the hippies and, you know, all the way up to the modern day um, with, uh, yeah, Susan Sarandon's in it, Whoopi Goldberg, people like that. Um, and, and again, you know, when I show it to people and they, they recognize someone, you know, like I remember showing it to this guy, Russ Belleville, this kind of activist from Washington and he he saw Tallulah Bankhead in there who had his birthday you know and he like he connected with her this is something I never would have predicted that he would that there would be that kind of a connection you know and and um so I didn't that either right um yeah. so I remember one woman bought it for me just a couple of years ago the book and she said she was going to give it to her one friend with whom she smokes marijuana she only has one girlfriend she smokes marijuana with like wow. that is still going on. So, um, and, and for years and years, women supported legalization 10% less often than men did and used it less often, or at least would admit to it. And that has finally turned around just in the last year or so. We just got to the point where the, the first poll that showed that women had a slight, um, slightly more support for legalization than men. And that has been brand new. And I think it's, you know, I credit women in the industry who've come forward, mothers who've come forward to advocate for their children to use like CBD or medical marijuana, and um, as well as, you know, the legalization efforts have finally brought women around. So much has been done. So much more needs to be done for women in the industry and the industry in general. Ellen, I really, really want to thank you for being here. If you missed any of this great interview with Ellen Comp, you can go to W420 Radio Network and click on the archive section to listen to this and other great interviews. And we'll be right back. America's newest and fastest-growing cannabis-focused radio network is expanding across the country and looking to add to our sales and marketing team. America's Cannabis Conversation offers listeners insight and information on the exploding world of cannabis. It also gives advertisers the opportunity to reach a hyper-targeted audience, literally neighborhood by neighborhood, in markets all across the country. We're looking for a few motivated individuals that want to essentially run their own local business. To learn more about this exciting opportunity or to apply, visit americascannabisconversation.com. 
This is Dan Perkins. I hope you have found the people interesting and helpful. In case you didn't hear all of the interviews in today's conversation, you can go to w420radionetwork.com to listen to this show. Welcome back to the conversation. And joining us today is Dr. Normit Kaminsky. I read some of his work and had a conversation with him and decided he was important for you to hear. So I've invited him and he's with us today. Welcome, doctor. Thank you, Dan, for having me on. You're welcome. Uh, doctor, I want to tell you, uh, and, and a, a somewhat of a setup um, uh, to the audience for what you're doing. Uh, we had a conversation with a very prominent doctor, virologist, and he helped me understand what was going on with patients who had a severe case of COVID-19. And he said to me, Dan, it's like having a raging forest fire in your lungs from the infection that the virus is attacking your body. And I've thought about that so many times. It's just a vivid description of what's going on. And I thought about you when I started reading about your your work, not only on COVID-19, but other ailments that involve inflammation. So tell us, if you would, please, doctor, about the treatment that you're studying. Yeah. So, so Dan, the, the, the work that you're, you're uh, referring to is really part of a a very long-term area of research for my laboratory, which is trying to understand how cannabinoids, so these are the, the biologically active compounds in cannabis sativa, how they modulate the immune system. And for the most part, these cannabinoids, and, and the classic example of that being delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, uh, Many of these cannabinoids, what they do is they inhibit or suppress immune responses. And so this is, this is what we're interested in. And the reason that this would be important in relationship to COVID-19 is, as the virologist um, mentioned to you, um, Having having your lungs infected with a virus like COVID, influenza is can be another example. What happens in some individuals is the immune response is so strong that it can actually be detrimental in terms of injuring the tissues where that immune response is occurring. So 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 the, the good news about the immune response is that it is trying to clear the virus. But if the response is, is really, really strong, it can actually damage the tissues like the lungs, which then would result in um, the lungs not functioning properly. And so the idea behind our studies with these compounds that can be isolated from cannabis sativa is that potentially they can uh, moderate how strong the response is. And so we've seen examples of this, and we've published this work, for example, with influenza, uh, H1N1. And um, our studies, which are in collaboration with a company called GB Sciences, um, and, and this is really their interest, is how this might be applied to um, to COVID, but more broadly, 
which would be to a condition called cytokine syndrome. So as I've mentioned, um, you know, COVID-19, if it induces a very strong immune response, can lead to something called cytokine syndrome. So these are cytokines are proteins that are released by your white blood cells to combat the virus. And if it, as I mentioned already, if it's if it's too strong, it can actually be deleterious. And so much of our work is focused on understanding how these these compounds in cannabis can be harnessed in a way that they could be applied therapeutically. And our interest is especially focused on um, inhibiting the inflammatory response, or at least making trying to to moderate that with these compounds. Doctor, I have a <clears throat> excuse me. I have a friend who is a talk show host out of Chicago. He recently came down with viral pneumonia, and he was in really bad shape. And he went to his doctor, and the doctor said, "There's not really much I can do for you because." you have a virus. And I was thinking about him when I was thinking about talking to you. Uh, Historically, we've not really had anything to treat viral infections except for inoculations like flu vaccines and whatever. Is that true? Well, um, yes and no. I mean, vaccines really are our, our, our best uh, way to prevent that from happening. I mean, there are antiviral drugs, but certainly for COVID and and even for influenza, um, you know, our may, our our best way to protect ourselves is really through vaccination. Yeah. The, the annual flu shot. Yeah. So do you think we're going to wind up? With, do you think I'm, we're going to wind up? I'm a very strong sorry, proponent of that vaccinations. I, I really am. I know a lot of people are are, are concerned about vaccines, um, but, you know, adverse effects to vaccines occur in a very, very small percentage of people, and the kind of the risk-benefit, um, you know, the benefits greatly, greatly outweigh any risk. Why do you think, uh, and if you don't have an opinion, that's fine. I just asked the question anyway. Uh, why do you think there's such a high percentage of people who are reluctant to get the get the shots, get the vaccines? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with a paper that was published many years ago, which then was retracted, um, making uh, various claims about vaccinations. And, and uh, I think there's been a lot of... Um, I don't want to disparage people that believe this, but kind of urban legend that somehow vaccinations um, can lead to autism and things like that. And, you know, most mm-hmm. of that, all of it is really not grounded in any any science that I'm aware of. Now, mm-hmm. do people do have adverse effects, though, to vaccines? I mean, it's like right. any therapeutic, you know, there's always going to be a small percentage of people that, will respond in an adverse way. Yeah. But that's typically a very, very small percentage. There was a there was a report from C D C about two weeks ago that said that the number of identifiable deaths uh from directly from COVID um is about fifty. Uh but anecdotally they think it's high as eleven thousand. 
and I, I don't know how you guess anecdotally at 11,000. I did see uh, on one of the medical professional websites that they, they've said that they believe over 3,000 healthcare professionals have died directly from working in the environment and treating people with COVID-19. Uh, I guess we'll, we, we need more time and more research to find out what's really going on. And I think maybe that, perhaps maybe that lack of information uh, is um, is what has some percentage of the people very concerned about it. Let's go back to your compound. Talk a little bit about your compound. How did you discover it, and how do you put it together, and where do you get it from? Yeah, so, so when I referred to these um, active compounds in cannabis, these are, these are chemicals that um, are, are quite diverse in terms of there being over 100 structurally similar compounds yet distinct that can be isolated from cannabis. And so, um, for the most part, we know a lot about delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol or delta-9 THC because that is the primary psychotropic cannabinoid in cannabis. Mm -hmm. But the other 100 plus, there's actually very little known about them. We know more and more about cannabidiol because obviously people are very interested in it. Many people believe it's the next miracle drug, <laughs> which again, I would, I would uh, caution your listeners. And, and there's a handful of others, but for the most part, most of these really have not been studied to any great extent. Um, our work with this pharmaceutical company, GB Sciences, uh, has been interesting because the company has taken an approach to uh, use various um, biological assays to screen these various 100-plus cannabinoid compounds plus other things that they've identified in, in the plant. And then they have narrowed it down to a handful of compounds, which they now are looking at uh, combining in, in various mixtures to see if they can develop, a, develop therapeutic agents. Uh, if, when, we, when we first... Oh, go ahead. No, I'm just going to ask a quick question. Uh, are we talking about at the end of the game of whatever they're doing here, are we still talking about an, an all-natural product? Um, well, yes, yes and no, in that the, 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 the molecules were originally identified in, in the plant, but they can actually be made artificially in a laboratory mm -hmm. or by... By a, by a pharmaceutical company mm -hmm. to ensure that their purity, and that's how they would be used if um, you know if they were ultimately used therapeutically. We've got a, about a minute left, Doctor. Um, so uh, you, you indicated when we talked before that you're also interested in the applicability of this uh, combination in the treatment of HIV. Yeah, so so the, the the other area that we're we're very interested in again pertains to the anti-inflammatory properties of these compounds. And what people who don't have HIV are probably not aware of 
is that uh, beyond being immunocompromised, HIV patients can develop develop some that something that was at one time called neuroAIDS, but has been renamed as HIV-associated neurocognitive disorder or HAND. And this is a uh, this is due to a chronic inflammation in the brain that results in the destruction of neurons. And ultimately, what what happens is that these individuals uh, begin to develop um, can develop a loss of cognitive function, and in most severe cases, it uh, can can result in dementia, very similar to what you might see in an Alzheimer's patient. Wow. And so our interest is in in using cannabinoids to decrease that neuroinflammation. Well, doctor, unfortunately, we're out of time for this uh, this segment. So please tell people how they can follow you and get uh, updates on what you're doing in your research. Uh, well, they can they can certainly follow us at Michigan State University, and um, I direct the Institute for Integrative Toxicology and also the Center for Research on Ingredient Safety, and so they can go to those websites and. Um, they can also follow follow our our, our science in the um, in the peer reviewed literature. Super, Dr. Norbert, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dan. If you didn't hear all of this terrific interview with Dr. Norbert, you can go to w420radionetwork.com, go to the archive section, and look for Dr. Norbert, and you'll be able to hear this entire interview. Thank you for taking part in America's Cannabis Conversation at americascannabisconversation.com. Each week, we provide our listeners information, education, and insight into the exploding medical and adult-use cannabis industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, local growers, detractors, and more. Learn how to build your own cannabis business, how to grow the product, what's legal, and where it's legal. Tune in each week to hear the latest industry news and updates from the American Cannabis Industry Association in Washington, tips on investing in cannabis, personal success stories, and more. Join the conversation. To hear this show in its entirety or to hear any of our archive shows, log on to americascannabisconversation.com and tune in for the next installment of America's Cannabis Conversation. (laughs) 